Hello and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we've watched today a film that I mentioned the other day as having recently uh, sort of come across ah. and wanted to watch. Um, the City Without Jews, yes. which is an Austrian expressionist film from 1924, the German title Die Stadt ohne Juden. Hmm. Apparently this is one of the best, kind of preserved and best known Austrian expressionist films. It's a kind of, seems to be a sub-genre of expressionism that really sits beneath German expressionism, which is what we kind of all know mm. as the expressionism of the period. It's based on a novel in which the city was Vienna, and the city in this is called Utopia. Yes. But it is basically Vienna. Mm. There's rampant hyperinflation, nobody's got jobs. A lot of the things that you read about in the history books of what uh, kind of Central Europe was like... Well, particularly Weimar Germany, with people going to buy bread with wheelbarrows of bills. And exactly, like yeah. What you read about, about hyperinflation in Germany in the 1920s, is what's going on here. Mm. Um, and this is blamed on the Jews. Mm. Um, very transparently, you know, there's no secrecy to it. People say the Jews are the problem, the Jews run the banks, mm. all this kind of stuff. And what this city does is create a law to expel the Jews. Yes. They enact it, and what they discover is that this doesn't solve any problems... Eventually, uh, they invite the Jews back. Um, I heard this was kind of a satire. That's what I understood it to be. That's what I'd read about it being. Having seen it now, that's not how it's I not describe a it. I mean, it's not very funny, put it that way. <laughs> it, I think it does um, things that satire does. It punches up. It aims at... No, it's, kind of, it's not a satire. It's like too raw, in a way, to be a satire. It's like too melodramatic. Yeah, It's yeah. involved in the emotion of the thing it's not distance from it no it's kind of, it's more i would put it in like more speculative fiction kind of area it says what if this were to actually happen well i don't even says. think it's speculative fiction because you know uh the film is made in 1925 24 you know, 24 you know uh russian pogroms were happening Yep. You know, kind of, I mean, I don't know the exact dates, but in the 20th century, there were Russian pogroms, right? So a few years before this, right? Yeah. So, 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 I suppose thing it's about it, speculative fiction, it's more like... Well, I suppose it's more like, it, it's a, not so much what if this happened, but what if this happened here? That's kind of what we always think, I think. We always think, oh, we live in such a civilised society, this couldn't happen here. And what this film says is... What if it did yes. happen here, where we think we are so civilised and so on? I suppose. And what it would then go on to sort of show is, that what real life would then go on to show, is that some of the film's kind of predictions, or at least kind of uh, dramatisations, are not very far from the truth. And some of it seems... There's shots, for instance, of the Chancellor, who puts the law into place, mm. on a balcony, kind of addressing the people. Though I thought that that is imagery of Hitler in the 1930s doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. And actually, it made me think the only reason we don't see that kind of thing today is because people don't need to address people from balconies anymore. Yes. They've got telly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Though, you know, all of the things are still there. Mm. Um, I mean, I found the film kind of both fascinating in all kinds of ways. So, you know, my way of thinking about it is, my God, you know, the, the pogroms were so fresh, right? Kind of, you know, I mean, that's how a lot of immigrants kind of ended up in Canada and, you know, the East Coast. It was like escaping from pogroms in Russia and in Poland. And then, of course, there's also what we now know that will happen a decade after the film was made, or actually not even a decade, right? We had Kristallnacht was 33. A note here from Mike while I'm editing. Kristallnacht was 1938, so 14 years after the film came out. We didn't double-check this while we were recording. 
this is admittedly a, an Austrian film and you know, kind of what we're talking about in a way is events in Germany, but then, you know, there was Anschluss and, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so the, the film is also informed by a knowledge of what happened later. So, for example, you, th you think, you know, the protagonist who was forced to go to Paris, right, and then sneaked back in pretending he was a Christian, you know, and then everything is reconciled and happy at the end. You keep thinking, oh, you should have stayed in Paris, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you might not have ended up in an oven had you stayed in Paris. Yeah, you keep thinking things like that. Mm -hmm. right? um, so, so it's a weird, it's a weird and interesting response to the film because, you know, it's informed by your knowledge of history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, at either end, yeah, before and after the film was made. And so you're admiring a lot of it, right? And then kind of you have all of these other feelings around it, yes. So it's, a, it's kind of like a, a very fascinating film. I, I told you before we started the podcast that I had a very weird and a strong response because a few years ago I went to Vienna and I was in a cafe with a friend, Nikki, you know, and the cafe was full of posters. <laughs> I mean, it had ostensibly been an actor's cafe and whatever, it was full of posters of uh, you know the city without Jews, and I was really shocked, you know, that you, yeah, because you know when you hear the title, yeah, yeah, and, and particularly you didn't, know, you didn't know it was a film, and, exactly, and particularly in Vienna, mm. right? Uh, and of course, then we looked it up, yeah, yeah, and and kind of you know uh, uh, we stayed, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know the title alone feels kind of shocking, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah, you can imagine if this was released today, the kind of response it would get just on, on that basis. Yes. Um, I must say, as much as I was looking forward to watching it, I did find myself disappointed, um, really, with what it was overall. I found myself disappointed by the expressionism, which I felt didn't really join in until the very end, where the, um, the guy is sent to a mental institution and kind of imagines uh, the stars of David everywhere. Actually, those things are fabulous. Uh, but, you know, I mean, when we're talking about expression, I think it has expressionist elements, mm. you know, but actually I don't really think they come to the fore until the end, you know, right. until those scenes. Because my, my feeling about it was how handsome the film looks. It's a beautiful, beautiful restoration. It yeah. is. So, you know, some of the images, they're like kind of, you know, they could have been filmed today. I mean, it's re really beautiful. But I did think... The film is not really expressive, yeah. Mm. So visually, know, visually, that it was all like all the shots were face on, you know, almost at eye level, right? Like you know, there wasn't doing anything. The the shots, the angles, the lighting weren't doing anything expressive. It was almost like they were filming it, right? Yes. Uh, and the interiors were sometimes like amazing, yeah. Like those those scenes at the synagogue at the beginning, mm. you know, I thought were wonderful. And actually they were interestingly filmed. They were at an angle, yeah, so mm -hmm. you saw different perspectives. And there seems to be uh, scenes that are documentary footage that are extraordinary, right? Like thousands. like large crowds. Yeah. Yeah. Um and it's and, and on real locations, right? So and uh, yeah, so so I think the film seems to have a combination of documentary footage but also shots in the real Vienna, yeah? Mm -hmm. The streets of Vienna and so on, and then studio filming, which also adds a kind of a, you know, 
a patina or a layer of interest because you keep thinking, oh my God, this is, you know, how the streets really looked. Yeah, this is how what the clothes that people wore. This is, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of, you know, which when you look at the interior scenes, you think, well, this was designed. So it's kind of some stylized version of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, but all of those things are kind of thinking about the film as a historical document rather than, you know, as a, as a work of cinema. And, and as a work of cinema, I found it difficult to see. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, but as a, as a historical kind of artifact, as you say, it's amazing to think it's nearly 100 years old now. I know. In 2020. I mean, whenever I see a film from the 20s or the 30s, I kind of imagine that I'm still in the year 2000, so it feels a bit closer. But yeah. no, we're 2020, we're almost 100, 100 years, years from this. this. And it's amazing the condition that it's in. Um, apparently, a copy of the film was found, discovered, in it was thought to be lost. And then a copy was found in 1991 uh, that was on nitrate, and it was almost at the point of complete disintegration, so a kind of emergency copy was made. And later, in 2015, a copy of the entire film was found in a flea market in Paris, in really good condition, one of those amazing finds. Um, And the Austrian Film Archive organised a crowdfunding campaign to restore Mm. it, and it raised over £72,000. Wow. So that's where this comes from. That's why most of the film is in amazing condition, and then... I'm sure you noticed a few shots in between are of quite low quality. They've also been spliced in. It's interesting to note, so basically when I heard about this film, I got as far as the title and the kind of first paragraph and then thought, oh right, I want to watch this, I'm not going to read anymore. And actually having now seen it and then read more about it, there's a whole sort of history to what's going on in this film that's fascinating that I had no idea about. So Mm -hmm. that is part of it, the, the rediscovery of it. But also, so it's directed by Hans-Karl Breslauer. It's based on a novel by Hugo Bettauer. And apparently the changes that were made really drove Hugo Bettauer, the novelist, away from it. Mm. It, So in the novel, it was Vienna rather than Mm. Utopia. And um, at the end of this, the film kind of resolves in in quite a happy way um, that Jews are kind of realised to be nice people along, they weren't the problem and this sort of thing. And that's not how the book ended. Mm. The book I understand to be more kind of severe. There is also this thing about the specific end of, of the film, as described on Wikipedia, and it comes from a few other sources that have written about the film, says that the main counsellor who brings the law in wakes up at the end from a dream or nightmare. It's, the whole film is revealed to have been a nightmare, so sending the Jews away, all the things going even worse than before, that's all revealed to have been a dream. And he wakes up, and it sounds like a kind of Christmas carol thing, where he wakes up and realises that Jews are people too. Mm. Um, That's not what we see in this film, so I don't know whether there are still things missing, where this information comes from. Supposedly, apparently there's a bit from the programme, the original programme back in the 20s, that describes this. Mm. It's not what we saw. It's Um, not what we saw. What we saw was a very kind of happy ending. The law is decided to be repealed. But in order to repeal it, they need a two-thirds majority. And in order to get this two-thirds majority, they drug to sleep one of the kind of main architects mm. of the law and just drive him out in, into the middle of nowhere so he can't vote against it. So they have the one vote advantage mm. that they need. And everyone, and then you know, the one Jew who you mentioned, um, the guy who pretends to be French in order to get back into the city, he's welcomed back as the kind of first Jew back. Yeah. And the uh, you know, councillor says, my dear Jew... He says, in, uh, <laughs> which, as I say, I, I demand you call me that from now on. That's how you address me, my dear Jew. And people kind of realise that everything's okay. And it really, it, it feels, it doesn't feel fitting to me. It doesn't feel tonally fitting. It doesn't feel... Well, it doesn't make sense. Right, yeah. Right, because the most powerful scenes in the film 
were the scenes of the expulsion right so the law is passed and then you know you have like this whole series of shots very melodramatic but actually very effective right of people being kicked out of their houses mm -hmm. you know and some are young and some but some are very old and vulnerable there's a blind one who's forced to leave his house right there's another one that kind of walks by you know and says this is the house where i was born i'll never see it again like so moving and and actually you can imagine that really being the case right and mm -hmm. also you know, it's so d different than our way of thinking, right? Because, I mean, you know, these were people that were born there. They've not known anything else. They're not, like, immigrants getting kicked out, mm. you know. And then this imagery of the Jews being put onto trains. Yes. Um, that really evokes the yeah. imagery that would become familiar from several years later of the Holocaust. Although, I mean... Here they're the lucky ones, right? They yeah. get to go on a train as opposed to walk <laughs> yeah. in the night. But it, but you're right. It yeah. carries those associations as well. It does. Although uh, it, it did kind of make me think. What I liked about those scenes um, uh, of of the leaving is how how basic it sort of seemed. Like it made me think about when you see films about the Exodus. Yes. Right. Um, and the Exodus, of course, is very different because that was being free and liberated and finding a freedom away from bondage in in ancient Egypt. This, of course, is about being kicked out of where you should be free. Um, but when you when you think of imagery from biblical films, they're grand, you know. Yeah. This great mass of people moving, and you get these landscape shots, and it's beautiful and epic, and you get the sweep and the music. Mm. And in this, it's people trudging along lanes a very very long way with loads of bags. Yeah, in the cold, <laughs> in yeah, the mud. At, at Christmas, <laughs> they, they say you have to leave by the twenty fifth of December. Yeah, you know, and uh. it's um, it's prosaic and normal and believable and cruel and actually it brings up all of these images of refugees now yeah yeah i mean that is you know kind of this is happening now uh you know for, for slightly different reasons it might not be uh, questions of religion but they often also are questions of race mm. yeah kind of um you know i don't know kurds or whatever being kicked out or i'm sure i'm getting you know the information wrong but you see this on the news all the time people being kicked out of you know, of a particular country for their ethnicity. Mm. So it's not as if... Or just being driven away because they know they aren't safe there and having to leave. Yes, or, you know, kind of... Uh, um, I mean, you know, one of the things that it made me think of actually was Brexit. You know, it's not comparable, mm. right? You know, but this thing of people in power kind of making calculated cynical decisions about finances, you know, and throwing millions of lives upside down mm. right uh whilst the rest of the population think kind of nothing of it <laughs> it really you know yeah. made me empathize right <laughs> yeah so in, in this film a major target of the critiques is the very highest in society the rich people the bankers i mean the genuine bankers the film is not populated by jewish bankers but these mm. are speculators from all around the world and their their ethnicity is not particularly identified um and they're the ones, you know, speculating. No. I mean, right at the start, when you see the hyperinflation, it's, you know, I'll give you 50000 for a dollar, and then five seconds later, I'll give you 55000 no. And later on, it's still happening. And there's, well, there is one particular named anti-Semite from America who's pumping no. money into the city, who eventually stops pumping money, in, money into the city when it's not going as well as anyone wanted, I guess. Mm. Um, but that's where, that's where a lot of the films... Um, kind of that, that, that's a strong target for the film, right? It sees that that this is the problem. This is the problem with the inequality going on in the city. 
One thing that kind of didn't make sense to me is um, when the film begins, it begins with the city in dire straits financially. Hyperinflation is already happening. You see this mm. at the start. Things are going very, very badly, and that gets blamed on the Jews, mm. which I understand to be a difference, again, from the novel, where things aren't going badly in particular. There's just animosity towards the Jews, mm. and it's the Jews getting kicked out that starts a kind of downward spiral. In this, the Jews get kicked out, and things get worse. Mm. Um, and there is this talk about, uh, like, uh, some of the shops are doing worse. Um, so a fashion shop or a clothes well, shop. Well, there's a whole thesis that without Jews, <laughs> a city becomes barbaric. You know, so there's no pastry shops, there's no fashion. <laughs> yeah, like the Jews kind of bring high culture, which I yeah. kind of thought, really? Like, is this not stereotyping in a different way? <laughs> Um, because cause ultimately... Right. <laughs> so it kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I, I suppose it makes sense in the sense that there's no reason that Jews being there or not being there would particularly change the, this overall mm. downwards economic spiral and that it would continue to get blamed on the Jews is um, believable. Um, but then the idea that them coming back would kind of perk everything up. There seems to be this thing about businesses um, uh, kind of reviving when they bring them back. And I just, I thought, the film seems confused itself about the actual world it's trying to set up. Yeah, it's definitely confused. Um, But, you know, kind of when we're talking about stereotyping, it's a stereotype that has a certain historical um, roots or resonance, right? Because, Mm. you know, I read this fabulous book on Marx uh, a few years ago, this biography, which was called something like A 19th Century Life or something, Karl Marx's 19th Century Life. where, um, you know, they give a history of Jewish cultures in Middle Europe. Uh, And, of course, one of the things is that until Napoleon, you know, they were excluded from the professions, right? Mm. So you couldn't be a lawyer, you couldn't, yeah? So so actually the arts is a place that kind of, you know, um, Jews could uh, participate in. Uh, And, um, you know, kind of... uh, uh, Certainly in the 19th and early 20th century, kind of, you know, some of the biggest names in philosophy and all kinds of arts really were kind of Jewish people, you know, because, uh, you know, there was still such great exclusion from so many other areas of, you know, social Mm. life. Um, So, Mm. yeah, it's a stereotype, but not one without. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is, yeah, again, there's a thing in the film about um, when they're having the debate in the town hall, I suppose, or the city hall, mm. early on, which I think is another great set yes, of the film. That is I mean, that's got set. a real kind of large-scale... Grandeur. I, must yeah. have, I felt this is a very expensive film. Yeah. Mm. Um, when they're having the debate early on about what they're going to do um, about, uh, about the societal problems, and particularly about the Jews, they talk about plays, you know, and then one guy calls out from the gallery we write plays as well and the counsellor goes yeah but you never get them performed that's the difference (laughs) yeah Um, anyway I kind of I really am glad I saw it right because I think there are some things that are just so striking there are some things that I could see myself using in classes actually you know so you complained about the expressionism but you know, those ending sequences with the Star of David. That's where it comes alive, visually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. those are extraordinary. Um, so I liked all of that very much. I mean, the I loved the melodramatic aspect of it. Mm. Yeah, those scenes were fantastic, actually. I think it doesn't cohere very well. Um, I did not... So 
when I was watching it, at the beginning, I thought, oh, what interesting music, because this has a new score. Yes, it's from the last few years. Yes. School. And then, as the film progressed, I found it more and more grating. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a kind of electronic, atmospheric thing. It's not your. It's not what you'd expect from Silence. Yeah, it's almost like an experimental kind of piece, mm. you know, with kind of almost industrial bits and choral bits and dissonance. You know, and what I wanted was like, I don't know, a classic score full of, <laughs> you know, traditional kind of, what is it, Kelmes or whatever. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's what I wanted in this film. You there know. are times when I think the score is very, very fitting. Or, you know, around the imagery of the juice being kicked out, mm. I think it couldn't be more fitting. It feels just right. Mm. Um, because it, it is this dehumanizing, uh, uncertain kind of thing. And, um, but there are times later on where, you know, when it tries to get happy towards the end of the film, when things are being resolved in that very unbelievable way, um, that I think is, you know, it's just to sort of, you know, that film, it's a, it's a real classic sort of changing the details for a happy ending because mm. we're afraid of response and censorship and so on. The, um, the score doesn't keep up. The score can't change with it effectively enough. Yes. Um, it's hard, yeah. Um. Some more information about the film. It was released in 1924 and it was shown in Berlin in 1926 and it made it to New York in 1928. And despite the fact that these changes were made to avoid, you know, to basically lower the kind of political charge mm. of the story, it still had a violent response from the Nazis. The Nazi party had been going since 1920. Mm. Um, so, you know, and, and actually, when you think about it, just around the time this was released shortly after was when Mein Kampf came out. So, you know, the Nazi party was really on the rise mm. in the mid-twenties. And the novelist, Hugo Bettar, in 1925 was murdered by a Nazi who was 20 years old, who apparently this guy Otto... Um, I'm not going to give his name because fuck him. Remained a Nazi the rest of his life and lived until, like, 1990 and was unrepentant about... you know. Wow. So this guy just believed in what the fuck he was doing and would continue to boast about having killed this novelist so and the novel itself was very successful so it sold 250,000 copies in its first year in wow. I think 1922 which is massively popular and was yes. translated into a number of different languages the film was not as successful um, but got this kind of response as well um, I mean it's interesting because it kind of made me think we, we have talked about the, the bravery of uh, making anti-Nazi films mm. during the Nazi period. Mm. So you've spoken particularly about your love for uh, To Be or Not To Be. Yes. We've spoken, although we've never seen together, The Great Dictator. Yes. Um, this was a film that came before... And much closer to home in the sense that it's an Austrian film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it came before, you know, those um, those parties were at their most powerful. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of anticipating the things that would actually go on to happen. No. But, you know, anti-Semitism was very strong back then. That's where this all kind of came from. And the Nazi party was growing. But the, these changes being made to to try and lighten it, I mean, I think I think one of the reasons that people describe it as a satire is because I think it was meant to be seen as a comedy, really, even though we don't find it that funny today. Yeah, I mean, it has some comic elements, Right, particularly the daughter of the councilman, yeah, who's engaged to the, mm-hmm. you know, to Leo. Um, it has moments of wit, so you know that big fat woman who says, "Once I kick the juice out, what'll happen to me?" You know, with my 
Uh, she's the mistress of this Jewish guy. Um, but I wouldn't describe it as a, as no. a comedy. <laughs> no. So, um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't have anywhere to go with it. It just was making me think about actually this not being brave in the way that we think about the, you know, those surviving films, those classics well, being brave. No, it has to. It, I mean, this, this is a brave film. I mean, my God, you know, the topic alone, the scenes that it films, the repercussions that it had, mm. you know, because, I mean, with Nazism on the rise, yeah, so the, you know, the writer of the novel was killed. I mean, how much more, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how much more risk do you want to take? Absolutely. Right. But that's what I mean. For, you know, the novel, my understanding, again, I haven't read the novel, um, and I'm going on what I know about the differences, what I've read about the differences. The novel was much stronger about, you know, the message it was putting across, and these changes were made for the film. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, those, those are also kind of differences, mm. you know, between, uh, you know, an art that only requires pen, paper, and the <laughs> writer, you know, and, you know, one that re- requires, you know, uh, millions of dollars and uh, whole groupings of people, and, you know, that then requires broad circulation. I mean, you know, when you say brave and risks in relation to one and the other, you're really speaking about different things. Sure. You know? There's different measures for each, mm. you know. I think, uh, certainly as a film, I would consider it to be brave. I mean, why, you know, kind of, we, we certainly don't have very many of them, and particularly in this yeah. period, True. right? So, um, I mean, I'm sure there must be many other films uh, against anti-Semitism, uh, you know, in the 20s. I mean, there must be a handful. Um but off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Right? Mm. I mean, I know there are actually. It's, I just have a faulty memory, but <laughs> there there are not many, right? Yeah. So by that reason alone, I think it's it's a very brave film. Mm. Um, I have to say, overall, I did find myself a little disappointed with it. Maybe it's maybe it was the um, yeah. I mean, when you're looking forward to something and it doesn't quite meet that, sometimes it can be more crushing than it would otherwise be when you didn't really know mm. what you were saying um, I found it quite slow and I think that lack of expression and not just visual expression but quite a lot of lack of feeling through a lot of it like I say there are these times you know seeing the the, um, the dramatisation of the Jewish mm. residents citizens mm. being kicked out mm. you know it's very evocative very effective yes it's very um, moving that's where I found the film and it's most moving I I Outside of that, I kind of struggle to maintain an interest yes. emotionally. Um, and narratively, it's not very coherent. They kept losing track of who was who. Yes, you know, I did and, as well. And what was happening. Um, but, you know, I think on the other hand, for me, I'm very glad I saw it. Mm, you know, it kind of, it looks magnificent. It has magnificent sequences, actually. Um, it's an important historical document. I think it's an important... Um, film text yeah to me you know the discovery of those expressionist scenes at the end expands my repertoire <laughs> mm. you know uh, um, so so I think there are very many reasons to see this film not the least of which is a kind of you know a reson a resonance with contemporary f- time so on the one hand you know we're finding all these faults with it you know, on the other hand, you know, how different is this with what's happening with Mexicans in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, they there are literally pogroms in the U.S. Like, 
you know, kind of, you know, police hunting down people without papers and kind of and kicking them out and often people who are born there and, you know, kind of, you know, several generations. Like, it's just, mm. you know, the buildings of walls. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, uh, all of this stuff is happening now, really. Um, and it's happening with the most vulnerable and kind of, you know, so I think one of the things that the film is so um, difficult to see, which might be why it's more effective than we think, is because on the one hand, all the upper classes, you know, to them, everything is just a bit of a joke. It's a, it's a political maneuver, yeah, to mm. kind of keep their job or make things better or, yeah, it's kind of so... Um, dishonorable right? mm. it's so base it's like michael gove you know <laughs> kind of filmed mm. right and yet the effects on you know millions of people are so tumultuous and profound and yeah mm. and so it's that disjuncture of tone between yeah people kind of drinking fine wine and making jokes and you know and really kind of being weaselly about mundane things like you know Kind of is your job worth millions of people suffering right? yeah mm. so and all of that has a light tone as opposed you know to what we then see yeah but again you know that has real resonance now and you know mm. many countries around the world right like we you know we keep seeing kind of you know people on rafts and you know yeah. people walking to another to turkey or to greece from turkey or you know like there's all all those things are happening all the time Right. Uh, you know, I was hearing from a friend who's who belongs to a group, you know, to kind of send money from uh, uh, Central American countries, you know, that then wash up in the south of Mexico. Yeah, because, you know, so anyway, I'm ranting. Mm. But yeah, it's kind funny of, you mentioned Mexicans, actually, because there is a film from 2004 called The Day Without a Mexican mm. by uh, Sergio Arau right. uh, that posits basically the same thing as a city without Jews, except it says no Mexicans in California yes. and how California is so dependent on Mexicans to yes. suddenly moving it on, which sounds kind of interesting. Apparently yeah. it's not very well reviewed, but yeah. sounds kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. So shall we wrap it up? Mm -hmm. Final thoughts? As a work of film art, I was um, a bit disappointed. Um, you know, I do have a number of criticisms of, of, of how the story is told and, and how much it makes sense and so on and so forth. Um, but it's a kind of amazing historical document and artifact, and it's amazing how how resonant some of that imagery is, um, and some of the ideas are on the fact that we're still it's still so relevant a hundred years on mm. that we can basically identify the same things going on here as, mm. as now. Um, it's incredibly depressing. Yes, mm. um, I, you know, as as a, as an academic. I am really glad I saw it. Um, you know, I think it's not the greatest film in the world, but there are very many reasons to see it. Uh, and it has, uh, you know, quite extraordinary sequences, actually. Um, so um, I'm very glad I see it. And I recommend it, uh, though, you know, with the proviso that, you know, it is a bit of hard work to watch at times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think rewarding uh, uh, at the end. Hmm. All right, so thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at eavesdropmovies. Mm -hmm. uh, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. 
Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.